Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can read along on the screens with us today. Uh, we're continuing our second week now uh, in our series called Exiles. We're looking at the letter of 1 Peter, and we're really excited to dive back into the first 12 verses again today. But before we do that, uh, let me pray for us and ask the Lord uh, to bless His Word as we receive it. Let's pray. Jesus, again, we just thank you for your grace and your love, Lord, that we can proclaim no matter what is going on in our lives, that it is well with our soul. Lord, let that be true. Let us sing that today with true belief in our hearts that you are who you say you are and you've done for us what we know to be true by giving us your life for ours. Help us today to understand what Peter is saying and what you are saying through him to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, we began our new spring sermon series called Exiles. And uh, we're looking at the book of 1 Peter over this month, uh, March, April, and probably into May. And what we're talking about is the natural tension that we all feel, or at least we all should feel, as Christians living in a non-Christian world. So, in other words, there's a tension, right? So, so on one hand, we, we know we belong to God. We know that He loves us and we are His and our true citizenship is in heaven. But on the other hand, we are living in this world now, right? On this planet and in a society where, generally speaking, the teachings of Jesus are not accepted as truth, at least absolute truth, and something we must live by. So there's this tension in the heart of a Christian that we should all feel to some great degree, great degree while we are trying to live as citizens of another world, but in this world currently. And you see, nobody understood this better, I believe, than the Apostle Peter. Peter and the other disciples of Jesus, they went through much persecution because of their faith. They were living for Jesus in a secular society, in a pagan society that believed in many different gods and value systems and morality was skewed. And there was all kinds of just great challenges that came by trying to live according to the teachings of Jesus. And so Peter, in around the year uh, 63 A.D., he decided to write a letter, all right? And this letter that we have before us is what he wrote in 63 AD to those Christians who were living in an area called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, okay? And so you have Christians living in a culture there, which was very similar to where we are today, uh, very pluralistic, uh, pagan society, many different religions, kind of a melting pot of diversity, and so the reason he wrote this letter was to encourage them and to embolden them to keep their faith, to keep pursuing God, to keep living according to the teachings of Jesus Christ, to acknowledge Jesus as the exclusive way to eternal life and the only way. And so Peter addressed this to them 2,000 years ago, and now here we are today, living in Jacksonville, Florida, and I believe that this letter Peter wrote to them is just as much relevant to us today as it was to them then. 
the culture and society at large is very similar to what it was in the province of Asia Minor in the year 63 AD. So last week we started really at what is a two-part sermon. We're looking collectively at the first 12 verses, which is basically the introduction to this letter. So the first thing we saw last week, I want to do a little bit of recap in case you weren't here last week, and just to kind of refresh our minds. The the first thing we saw was just the the big main point of 1 Peter, right? So the main point of 1 Peter is that we are elect exiles, and we see that by looking at that phrase in the first verse. Look at verse 1. Peter said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, that's that modern-day Turkey area. Now, he says, you are elect exiles. Now, when we read that phrase, these two words together, it seems at first like, you know, these two words don't really belong together, right? Because one of these words is very positive and encouraging, the word elect, right? That tells us that, man, we are God's people. We are God's chosen people, and we're secure in His love forever. He's given Himself to us. We belong to Him. We have a future inheritance in heaven waiting for us. What an encouraging word. But then the other word that Peter attaches to that is very frightening. It's very scary because we look at the word exiles and we say, well, that's, that means that we're people who don't belong here. So it's almost like, which one is it? There's a paradox here. It looks like they don't belong together. But Peter is showing us that the tension that we see, even as we read these two words, that tension is a real feeling that we should feel in our own hearts and minds as we live according to the teachings of Jesus in a society that does not accept such. So we are God's people living in a foreign land. So the question then, that's the main point of the letter, but now the question, as Peter's going to flesh out throughout the letter, is how do we live then, right? Like how do we deal with this real tension? How do we live? How do we deal with this tension? And that's what he, we started to look at last week in verses 3 through 5. Peter, the first thing he showed us in those verses was that we have to focus on what we know is true, Right? So in a world with so many voices telling us what we should believe and what we should think and what we should eat and how we should live and what we should, how we should parent, how we should you know, treat our spouse, right? there's so many voices and information overload in our society. So Peter starts by saying, you know what, let's focus on what we know is true. We know, he told us, that we've been given a new identity. In other words, we've been born again. So we don't belong to this world. Our citizenship has been transferred to the kingdom of God. We've been born again. We have a new passport, a new driver's license, if you will. We have a new identity, and it's in Christ. He is truly our identity. He died in our place. He lived the life that we could never live, right? He, he died the death we should have died, and he rose from the grave to defeat the power that sin has over your life. It's truly a completely new life. You've been born again, Peter says. Don't forget that in this world, he says. Then he went on to say, because we've been born again, because we have this new citizenship, we can live under a true living hope. We can really live for Christ in this world because of who we are. And then he lastly told us, and we always are looking to the future. 
We have a secure hope. We have a secure future. Our inheritance in Christ is waiting for us. So man, when you think about who you are, your true identity, the power that gives you to live in this world now with your eyes always fixed on eternity, you can really live a Christian life in a non-Christian world. That's what Peter's saying. And so that brings us to where we left off last week to verse 6. You see, if we really focus on these truths in verses 3 through 5, then then those, those truths will really shape our perspective and our perseverance. That's what Peter's telling us in verses 6 through 9. We have to let these great gospel truths about our identity, our life, and our sanctification, and our future inheritance. Man, let that change the way you see the world. Let that change the way that you motivate or have motivation to persevere in this life. When we focus on what we know is true, our identity, our hope, our future, these rock-solid, encouraging, and empowering truths should be the foundation that shape how we think, that shape how we treat other people, that shape how we think about ourselves in society, our family, those that don't know Christ. We should also be gaining more and more motivation to truly live for Christ as we dwell on these things. So that's what Peter is saying here. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Well, in what? When he says this, he's referring to something. He's referring to those three core gospel truths we talked about last week, right? That's what he's referring to. So in these truths, rejoice, right? We rejoice because why? We gain a perspective of gratitude when we really think about the gospel, and who we are as God's people. I can rejoice in those truths because that means that, man, I am a wicked sinner, but I've been saved by God's grace. I have truly been redeemed, and he is in the process of transforming my life. That's a reason to rejoice. And that's what Peter's saying here. Look again, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials. So even though we are rejoicing in these great gospel truths, a proper perspective on our lives in this world is going to come through experiencing what Peter calls various trials. Did you hear that? A proper perspective in this world is going to come through us actually experiencing difficulties. And that's kind of hard to swallow because what, what, what kind of trials is Peter referring to here? Well, remember, he's writing to Christians who are trying to live for Christ while also being immersed in a culture that does not accept, much less live by, the teachings of Jesus. So the kinds of trials that Peter is referring to and talking about here pertain to really persecution, right? Of some kind, to some level. You could call it pressure. Pressure to cave in and live the same kind of lifestyle as a, non, as a non-believer. Or pressure to just kind of give up and just quit even trying to reach people who don't know Christ because you think they're too far gone. 
You see, he's going to address a lot of these issues later on in this letter. In fact, we're going to look at, he's going to talk about what, it, what we should do when we're insulted for being a Christ follower, for being a Christian. Uh, he's going to talk about the, the challenges of obeying a secular government. He's going to talk about the challenges of living out your faith and your marriage. He's going to talk about uh, the workplace and, and what that looks I mean, he's going to talk about a lot of really practical stuff as we go, but he's still in this introductory statement here at the beginning. But notice for today what he says. He says, we are grieved by these trials. So we're going to face challenges, right? I mean, that's, that's the issue. That's the whole point of the letter, elect exiles. As God's people living in a un, uh, an unchristlike world, we're going to obviously face challenges. But he says, these are going to grieve us. Persecution, to any level, is going to sting. This pressure that you may be feeling right now from a lost family member who doesn't know the Lord, that you may be feeling from a coworker who's trying to get you to join in in the improper conversations, the pressure that you may be feeling from someone in your class at school to give in to that peer pressure to do something you know Jesus would not want you to do, right? Whatever the pressure is to conform to the social norms around us, it is going to grieve us, Peter says. It's going to be emotionally draining. And that's true, and that's natural. I mean, just think about it. If you, if you work during the day and you come home from work, you know, you're tired. And, and you probably don't want to do a lot of housework. You probably don't want to do things around the house that, that are going to spend your energy because you don't have any hardly left, right? You're just emotionally drained and physically drained. And Peter's saying that's kind of the feeling that we're going to have in this life and in this world as Christians going against the tide, going against the grain, going against the current. It's going to be emotionally and spiritually draining because everyone else is doing something a certain way, and here we are saying, well, actually, though, Jesus wants us to do it this way. But notice he says, much of this is going to be necessary. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, why is Peter saying that some of these trials are going to be necessary? Because how we respond to them, right? How we deal with these trials, this great tension that we experience as Christians, how we deal with these things is going to show whether or not our faith is really genuine. That's why it's necessary, Peter says. It's necessary that we go through the fire so that the Lord can shape us into a person of steady, consistent, persevering faith that is evidence to a lost world that God knows what He is doing and is changing people and accomplishing His purposes. Look what Peter says in verse 7. He goes on, right? So, so even though we're grieved by these various trials that are necessary, why? Verse 7, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So Peter's saying collectively, the different challenges to, you, to your faith that you face in this world are kind of going to serve as a litmus test for how genuine and steady your faith really is. You know, when they put gold in the furnace, what happens? The impurities melt away, and the fire refines the gold. It purifies the gold. But even gold eventually perishes. But Peter's saying the person whose faith is put through the difficult circumstances of this life and endures it, that faith never fades away. See, this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing in your heart as you live obediently to Him when no one else around you is. And that might be, in today's society, our greatest challenge as a Christian, right? To avoid sinning, to avoid sin and giving in to sin of whatever type or kind you can imagine that you have struggled with or currently struggle with, but to avoid that, whatever it is going to take for you to live obediently to the Word of God and what Jesus wants and the way He designed you to live in this world the way He designed it to be. Man, to live in light of that is going to take some serious dedication and effort, but it will be proven as you go through those difficult challenges and other people will see a faithful witness. They'll see a steady faith, not a dramatic roller coaster, right? Not something that is is trying to boast or show how great you are. It's just a steady faith. And that's what we need. Steady, consistent faith. Edmund Clowney is a theologian who said this. I'm just going to read you his quote. He says it way better than I can. He says, if our faith is to endure, it must be purified and stress-tested. Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. Boy, isn't that true? What humbles us quicker and more efficiently than going through a circumstance that we don't like? How often do we pray for the Lord to change our circumstances? But maybe the better prayer is that the Lord would change us as we go through these circumstances. Because that's what He's doing. The Lord doesn't promise you an easy life. If you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you get baptized up here and and you join our church and and all looks hunky-dory, that does not guarantee anybody at all, ever, an easy life. In fact, it is in fact it is the opposite. It guarantees you a hard life. You're like, "What are you talking about, pastor?" It give, it guarantees you a hard life because now, now you are going against the culture. You're going against the society. You're going against those who don't love Jesus with all their hearts, but they live in your house or they work beside you at your desk or they're in your schoolroom. It's a great challenge. It's a great difficulty. 
So instead of praying for the Lord to change those circumstances, man, what if we prayed for the Lord just to change us and our perspective about them and our will to persevere in them? That's what the Lord is doing. You see, as we continue to root our identity, not in the things of this world, but in these great gospel truths, we will begin to see the world differently, as God does. And the Lord will build greater and greater strength inside of us to carry on and not lose hope. So it's actually through those circumstances and those difficult challenges to your faith that the Lord is shaping you in the fire, your perspective, and He's building endurance in your heart. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 5. This was our scripture reading during our worship. But let's read it again, Romans 3, or I'm sorry, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. This is so good about how the Lord is changing you now and whatever circumstance you're facing that you don't like. And if you could change the circumstance, you would press a button right now and you would. But this is what the Lord is doing. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance. Think about that. How do you build endurance? Well, if you're training for a marathon, you have to start running and run and run and run. I've heard people talk about this. I've never done it myself, right? But you just run and you endure. And, and, and the more that you train, guess what? The further you go and the quicker you go. Is that what the Lord is doing, perhaps? in the circumstance that you don't like right now, listen to this, that endurance, that endurance that he's building in you, verse four, produces character. In other words, as you're running through this life and as you're, as you're facing those challenges along the way, you're learning how to handle each one more and more, right? You're learning God through the Holy Spirit is showing you, he's showing you how to think about each little challenge and bump in the road as you run along this course of life. He's building character in you He's showing you how to be more patient. He's showing you how to be less angry. He's showing you how to be more grateful. He's showing you how to be more compassionate towards those who don't know him and that bug you and get on your nerves. Character. Maybe that's what the Lord is doing. Look at this. Paul continues, that endurance produces character, and that character, guess what? That produces hope. Why does it produce hope? Because... When you realize, right, when you see the Lord's hand is working in your life and changing you and shaping you and your will and your emotions, your perspective, your perseverance, he starts to fill your heart with hope, real living hope, as Peter said. Because you know that he's working. You see it. You feel it. And you begin to really understand, man, this is going somewhere. The Lord is taking me somewhere, not to like a, a better earthly mindset, but to heaven. And he's preparing me along the way for an eternal inheritance. Listen to this. That's not all. Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Man, that is powerful. And that is encouraging. That no matter what we're going through, this tested genuineness of our faith, Peter calls it, that ultimately, as Peter says in verse 7, what is it going to do? It's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he returns and gathers his people once and for all to live with him in eternity forever at his second coming. That is when we know without a shadow of a doubt in full realization and full experience that the endurance that we had to go through and where the Lord was carrying us just on his shoulders and we feel like we couldn't go any further 
that He was changing our character and He was filling our hearts with hope through His Holy Spirit that lives in us. All for what? For the praise and the glory and the honor of Him. When He returns. But until then, Peter continues. Look back at 1 Peter 1 verse 8. Until then, here's the life in the here right now. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, genuine faith is strengthen, as I said, as we see God working in every circumstance, right? And when I say see him, I'm, you know, how, how, do you, how do you see God working, right? I mean, we don't see his hand coming out of the clouds and, and operating on you or doing something like that, but how do you see God working? Well, it goes back to what we just said. You see him working by changing you. You feel it, you know it, that the Holy Spirit is present because as much as you try to buck the system, right? As much as you try to go against the Holy Spirit's inner calling and working in your heart, oh, you know, you know you belong to the Lord because He is not giving up on you. And the fiery trials that grieve us are necessary because the Lord is melting away the impurities of our heart as we go through them. He's shaping us into who He wants us to be. See, that's how we see the Lord working. So even though Jesus is not physically here with us in front of us face to face right now, we feel his presence. We learn to love him even though we don't see him, Peter says. We learn to believe in the gospel more deeply. Like a stake that is driven into the ground, the gospel truth is driven deep into our hearts as we endure. And we rejoice, Peter says, with joy that's inexpressible. It's inexpressible. That means the world can't even explain it. And of course they can't explain it. Because the world, there's no reason for suffering to the world. There's no good that could come out of it. There's no good that could come out of a difficult circumstance or life. So the world just wants to use whatever system it can to rid our lives of complete suffering and, and problems and circumstances of any kind because nothing good could come out of them. Whereas the Christian looks at the circumstance that's difficult and says, no, I think I'm going to go through this because the Lord is with me. You see, that's inexpressible. That's a joy that the world can't explain. They look at us and they say, how in the world are you happy? How are you joyful through this? And we say, because it's not me. It's not me going through it. It's the Lord carrying me through to an eternal home. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To the world, it may not be that visible, but yet, oh, maybe it is when they see you, when they see your faith shining bright through the fire that you're going through now. Because we focus on what we know is true, we can let these gospel truths shape our perspective and how we view this world and our perseverance in it. And this may seem like a different trajectory that Peter takes here, but I think it makes perfect sense. The third thing we see in verses 10 through 12 of these first 12 verses is that because all these things are true, because we are Christians with the power of God in us, 
shaping us through every life circumstance, guess what? We can be grateful we live in this moment in time. We can be grateful we live in this moment in time. All right, now let me ask you a question. If you could live in any other era, this is kind of a fun question, if you could live in any other era of time, of human history, which would you choose? Now don't say it out loud, all right? Now, I thought a little bit about this, and I really don't know, honestly. I, I don't know where, what I would choose. I mean, the Middle Ages kind of seemed cool, but you know, like medieval times. But then I thought about actual like medieval times, the dinner theater, and I was like, well, no, probably not. <laughs> the bottom line for me is this. I would not survive in any other era of human history, okay? That's my point. Uh, I need air condition and a comfy bed. Now, there's a lot more. There's a lot more we could focus on in verses 10 through 12, but for the sake of time, I want us to focus on how grateful Peter is for the time in which he lived. He was so grateful that the Lord put him in the first century A.D. Here's why. Listen to this, verse 10. Concerning this salvation... So concerning the salvation we've been talking about, verses 1 through 9, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So in other words, the prophets of old, right, of the Old Testament were, were searching diligently and looking, you know, when is the Messiah going to come? Where is the Messiah? What what time period is he coming? Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets were, were looking and wondering. And as Juan Sanchez says, they, they would actually have longed for the time of the Christians in the first century where Peter lived and for the time of Christians in the 21st century. Why? Because we know the Messiah by name. What is Peter getting at here? He's saying it is such a privilege to live on this side of the cross after Jesus has come to earth and his death and resurrection has been made complete and final. Now we live in that era Man, how much of a blessing is it that we get to look back and have the hope of something that is anchored in our past while also looking to the future of its final restoration and redemption? We have such a privileged era that we live in as people of God in a non-Christian world knowing Jesus by name and being able to see His teachings and His life in Scripture. But you know, I'm, I'm not sure that all of us are always satisfied with the time God has us and the place God has us. In fact, I think we all struggle with this word called nostalgia, right? You know, nostalgia is defined as a, a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past. Right? So what most of us tend to believe, you know, is that this, this moment in history is the worst ever, Right? And we, we say that. Well, the world's so bad. You know, the world's the worst it's ever been, right? We, we say that. We, we tell ourselves falsely, you know, well, if, if things were only like they were, you know, when I was a kid, the world would be a better place, right? We say that, don't we? And look, I get it, okay? Trust me. Sometimes, 
You know, I'll be riding around in my car listening to 80s and 90s music, just kind of wishing I was at home as a kid playing regular Nintendo, you know, with the kind where you actually had to blow the dust out of the disc to get it to work. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right, kids, kids don't know how bad they got it these days, right? <laughs> but here's the point. If we just, if we just write off this era, or, or if we just write off the younger generation as a lost cause, or we just write off the secular society we live in that Lord, the Lord can't reach them, then we are at the same time denying the power of Christ and the sovereignty of God to accomplish His purposes in this moment in time. Our God is in control of all things and He is perfectly good and holy. And let me tell you something. He has you living in the 21st century in Jacksonville, Florida, sitting in this building right now for a purpose. You are here, not just in this building, but you are where you are in the time you live in. Have you ever really thought about that? The year you were born, you had no control over that. But God created you to live in a certain amount of days on this earth that we do not know. No one in here knows their days. But God in His goodness and in His sovereign will to accomplish His eternal purposes for His glory and your good put you where you are right now to accomplish the purpose that He wants you to serve right now. So as we think about this great tension in which we live as elect exiles... God's people living in a strange land. Now, let's never be discontent. Let's never be discontent with the time period that God has ordained us to live in, with the people He's put around us, with the places He has us, with the work He's given us, with the circumstances as difficult and necessary as they may be. May we never be discontent. Because we should never underestimate the significance of where God has us to reach this world for His glory. Are there significant and discouraging challenges to our faith and our society today? Absolutely. But you see, the appropriate way to deal with that tension is not to sit back and wish for a time gone by. It's to stand up and move forward with the power God's given us now. It's verse 6 and 7 again. Look at that. What Peter says. And just in light of everything we've talked about, now, now look at this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know and I understand that we all have circumstances right now in your life, in the here and now, where the rubber meets the road. We all have circumstances that are probably taking a toll on us there's something in your life right now, no doubt, no question, if we're all really honest, that something in your life is exhausting you. 
And it may just be an emotional, mental exhaustion. It could be a physical ailment. But the truth is, there's not a single person in here that knows or that would say that they don't have any circumstance that's not tugging at them and bugging them just even a little bit. But what we have to believe today is what Peter has told us, that even in this, with this truth, with these gospel truths, even in these grieved various trials you're experiencing, though they are necessary, we still can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. We can know today that the circumstances that you're going through that you don't like, that you would change if you could, if you could press the button right now, you would. But you can know today, and you can truly trust and believe that the Lord is taking and using all of that to shape you into who He wants you to be. That's assuring. And that's real hope, by the way. That is not wishful thinking. I think we just have to let Him. We have to let Him shape our perspective. We have to let Him build that endurance in us by being humble, confessing our pride, confessing the parts of our life where we feel like we have control, maybe we just need to let it go. Confessing that we sometimes think we don't need help, even from the Lord. I mean, if we confess and just admit our humble, constant dependence on His grace, on His power, on the Holy Spirit living in us, and let him shape your perspective. Let him give you the will to persevere. No matter what you're going through today. As we go into our time of response and prayer, maybe you're here and you need to confess just that. Your, your quickness to complain or your quickness to give up. Your quickness to give in and compromise your faith. Maybe you have questions about what it means to actually follow Jesus. And maybe you have questions about the fact that you feel like maybe your whole life has been kind of a spiritual game and you've been trying to impress other people and you've given in and you've signed up for some kind of religious system, but you really haven't given your heart to Jesus. Maybe you have thoughts or questions about that. Maybe you have questions about what it means to be baptized or join Kernan as a part of our faith family, part of our church. Whatever questions you brought in today or you have now, I want you to know we're here for you. Me and the other pastors, we're here for you. And we want to talk to you. So come find us after the service. We'd love to pray. We'd love to talk with you. But just know this. The Lord is with you. He's shaping you. And he's using you today. Through the fire, let your heart be filled with joy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that even when we are unfaithful, as often as we are, Lord, you are always faithful to us. Lord, our commitment to you is flaky at best. But your commitment to us is steady and constant and solid, always. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you don't give up on me and you don't give up on anybody here. That you're compassionate and that your grace is powerful. 
Jesus, I'm thankful that you died on the cross for our sins, that you died in our place. You died the death we should have died. But you rose from the grave to defeat the power of sin over our lives. And we don't have to live in bondage to sin. We don't have to live in addiction. We don't have to live as those who have no hope. Lord, you've given us a living hope. We've been born again into your family. And we have a future inheritance. So Lord, let these truths shape us. Let us surrender control, surrender our pride, and let your Holy Spirit continue to pour your love into our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.